This session is critical to all of us. As leaders, we must be transparent with our residents. The State Ethics Commission helps us follow state law requirements in reporting our activities as elected officials. Please welcome Megan Walker, the Executive Director of the South Carolina State Ethics Commission. Megan is joining us virtually for this session. Megan, you can start. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. I hate that I can't be there in person, but we had um, a previously scheduled training that was keeping me in the office today here in Columbia. But one of the things that I want to just go ahead and acknowledge before we even get started and go through this process is that I would like to make sure that we are having, as much as we can, an ethics conversation, um, which can be a little bit difficult because I am having to turn down the volume on, on my screen so that I'm not getting feedback. But if there are times that y'all have questions about your requirements under the Ethics Act or with the State Ethics Commission, if you could just let uh, I think Eric know and I'll be happy to answer those questions at the end. So I'm Megan Walker, the Executive Director of the South Carolina State Ethics Commission. This presentation, which I'm sure some of you have, have actually um, sat through before, is called Avoiding the $10,000 Crime. So the State Ethics Commission. The State Ethics Commission was founded in 1975, along with state ethics commissions across the country, mainly as a reaction to Watergate Keep in mind that if we have any sort of unrest at the federal level, or if there are um, issues relating the ethics of federal officials, then really there's a bright light that is shed upon officials, public members, and public employees at both the state and local level. So you, we had some of that going on in 1975, which led to the creation of the commission. In 1990, we got, we started the Ethics Reform Act, that, that began to, um, to come into place. And in 1991, it was introduced into law. The Ethics Reform Act was started largely as a reaction to Operation Lost Trust. Y'all, Operation Lost Trust was a, an investigation into corruption at the State House. The way this investigation started is with an informant, the way most investigations start. So there is a lobbyist who is Votes. There were envelopes of cash for votes by members of the General Assembly. So that brings us to the Ethics Reform Act. As a result of Operation Lost Trust, though, 17 members of the General Assembly were convicted and seven lobbyists were convicted. And it is um, largely seen as the largest public corruption investigation and prosecution in the history of our state. We have undergone in the past uh, several years a transformation here at the, at the State Ethics Commission. Prior to 2017, prior to April specifically, there were nine commissioners, all of whom were appointed by the governor. Now we have eight commissioners and we have really spread out that appointing authority. So of the eight commissioners, four are appointed by members of, um, by the governor, one by members of House Democrats, one by House Republicans, one by Senate Democrats, and one by Senate Republicans. So you, you don't have that concentration of power with the governor appointing all of the ethics commissioners. 
We also now, for the first time, have the ability to investigate complaints against members of the General Assembly and their staffs. So we, um, we have grown in our jurisdiction and our composition has changed. So who does the Ethics Act cover? Public officials such as yourself. That's anyone elected or appointed to um, a state a official of the state. And that is not only at the state level, but at the local level too, like your um, city councilor, council members and mayors. You also have public members. So if city council appoints a, a zoning board, those individuals are considered public members and public employees. Those are any persons employed by the state, whether that be at the federal or local level. So just as you all are under the jurisdiction of the Ethics Act, so am I. And so are the people who work for your local municipalities. So let's talk about this. Statements of economic interest. We are going to talk first about things that get people in trouble most often. And then we are going to talk about things that get people in the most trouble. Statements of economic interest and campaign disclosures. These are the things that get public officials in trouble most often because they do not file these in a timely manner. So please go ahead and pull out your cell phones, put this in your calendar, write it down somewhere so you can remember these dates. A statement of economic interest is due before assuming your role. So as you have new members who are coming onto council, if they were in nonpartisan elections, then they have to file a statement of economic interest before they are sworn in. If they were in partisan elections, then they should have filed them as a candidate. But if they didn't, make sure that they are file these statements of economic interest before they're sworn into office. Because if they have it, then there may be challenges to the legality of the votes that they took based upon the um, one reading of the, of the law that says that they are not properly on council because they should, by law, file the statement before being sworn in. And then every year of your service after that, you must file it by March 30th. Statement of economic interest is a lot like your taxes. You're going to file in this year, but the information is going to be for the previous year. So when I file my March 30th statement in my 2021 statement of economic interest, that was covering the income into my household for 2020. What is required on your statement of economic interest? The source type amount or value of income, not to include tax refunds, of substantial monetary value received from a governmental entity by the filer or the filer's immediate family during that reporting period. So during that previous calendar year, we're talking about the income to your household. So not just your income, but the income of your spouse. If you have a dependent child who lives with you, you are going to, um, to disclose the source of their income if they have a part-time job. For example, if you and your spouse are both employed, Let's say that you are employed at a private entity. Your spouse works for the government. Let's say your spouse is a school teacher and you have a child with a part-time job at a local grocery store. Your statement of economic interest is going to disclose the source of your income. Because your spouse's source of income is a governmental entity, you are going to have to disclose the source and the amount of your spouse's income. So if any income is coming to your home, whether it be through your service on council or through employment from a governmental entity, you must disclose the source of that amount or and the, um, and the amount. So such and such school board, X amount as the income. 
for your child because they fall under the definition of immediate family, you're also going to need to disclose the, um, the source of your child's income. And the reason for this, honestly, is transparency. So let's say that um, I have a spouse and my spouse works for a law firm and I disclose the law firm on my statement of economic interest. But then people can go on and say that I've also hired this firm to do some outside work for us, to do um, some consulting on legal issues for the agency. They can see that that is an inherent conflict of interest. And the way this stuff can come to light is through your statement of economic interest. I advise people to be very, very careful with these because you want to disclose every single thing that that statement of economic interest is asking for. I know when I've spoken to you in the past, I've told you that there is a, that I understand that the portal that y'all use to file campaign disclosures and statements of economic interest is archaic. We are almost crossing the finish line and relaunching that portal. And the goal is definitely by January 1, when you can start filing your statement of economic interest for the year 2022, you'll be doing it in an easier, faster, uh, more user-friendly portal. So, so hopefully that can alleviate any stress that using that system may cause you. Also, information required on your statement of economic interest. And that's the name of each organization that is paying for or reimbursing your actual expenses for speaking before them if you are doing so in your official capacity. For example, let's say that I was able to join y'all in, um, in Hilton Head today and the Municipal Association reimbursed my actual expenses for mileage then that would be something that I would disclose on my statement of economic interest because I'm being asked to speak in my official capacity and it's a reimbursement. Keep in mind that you can only be paid, only your actual expenses can be paid or you can be reimbursed for your actual expenses. You cannot be paid for the speaking engagement itself. That would be a violation of the Ethics Act. You don't have to disclose the following things. Anything that would be retirement, annuity, pension, IRA, disability, or deferred compensation payments. What we're really looking for is active sources of income, because those are the things that could, in some, in some way, influence our decision making. Your retirement, you're not necessarily going to make a decision based on your retirement, because that's money you've already earned. But if there is active income to your household, that is the type of income that, that we are looking for you to, to disclose. Keep this in mind also. The statement of economic interest is due by March 30th. That does not mean that you are required to start working on it on March 30th. These things can be confusing. You may forget your password to log in. You may have questions about what to disclose and you want to call us. Please start working. You can start working on it on January 1st. I understand that nobody wants to spend New Year's Day working on a statement of economic interest. But if you can get started in January and that way it gives you plenty of time to call us with any questions, you will alleviate um, a lot of the stress that can come with filing these disclosures. Because keep in mind, we have roughly 22,000 filings that are filed with our office every year. And everybody wants to wait until the last part of March to call us for help. And so we get inundated. And it may take us time to be able to respond to all of these phone calls. So the earlier you start, the more, um, the more we can help you, the more time we can spend helping you, with your statement of economic interest. So please keep that in, please keep that in mind as you as we go into 2022. And what I'll do right now is take a quick break and see if there are any questions from the audience. Let me turn up my volume. Do we have any questions? 
All right. And keep in mind, Eric, that I'm having to turn the volume down so I don't get feedback. So I'll just stop and ask periodically if there are any questions, okay? Moving right along. You're also going to need to report gifts on your statement of economic interest. And these aren't, you know, Christmas gifts from, from your children. These are gifts that someone is giving to you because of your official, your official duties, right? So you're going to report those gifts and give a brief description of them. And those gifts would include transportation, lodging, food, or entertainment. If you accept the dinner, always go and pay your own way. You don't have anything to disclose. But if you accept that gift, you must disclose, uh, disclose that dinner. This is um, an example of Governor Haley's statement of economic interest. You can see that she disclosed um, our salary as governor, as well as the use of the state car, the state plane, and the governor's mansion. She also went above and beyond what was required because she disclosed the amount of a private source of income, which would be her book deal. How to file your statement of economic interest. Once you get to this page, y'all, please keep in mind, hit file. It is not filed until you actually hit file. So we have people who will fill it out, hit save, and then walk away from it. And then they get penalized because they didn't actually file it. Make sure you hit file when you do this. Once you hit file, you can verify that your statement of economic interest has been properly filed in a number of ways. The first thing you can do is log out, go to the public side, put your name in the search engine, and you will see your statement of economic interest pop up because it goes live as soon as you hit file. The other thing is that you will get a, um, an email confirmation. So keep in mind that you may want to check your spam email as well as um, any sort of other filters you have to make sure that emails from the commission are coming through. Quarterly campaign disclosures. This is going to disclose to the public the total amount of contributions that you have accepted and the total amount of expenditures you've made. Breaking that down into more detail, you're going to get the date and amount of each contribution, um, as well as the name, address, and occupation of each person making a contribution. Keep in mind that one, you cannot accept an anonymous contribution. So you should have the name, address, and occupation of each person making a contribution. The second thing is that you can't just put not applicable or unknown, because while the system may let you upload it that way, once it goes through, it's, we will flag it and then come back and ask you for that information. So as you're accepting contributions, make sure that you, you get all of this information. And the same goes for expenditures. You're going to get the name and address of each person or entity to whom an expenditure is made, as well as the date, amount, and purpose of each beneficiary of an expenditure. When do you file these campaign disclosures? Let's say that um, you don't raise or spend any money over the course of your election you're still going to have to file a campaign disclosure. So we're going to come back to that at the end. But let's say you are raising money and as you're going along, you raise or once you hit that aggregate amount of $500, meaning you've raised or spent in total $500. I raised $250 and my filing fee is $250. Add that together, that's $500 and that will be my initial campaign disclosure. And then every quarter after that, you are going to file a quarterly campaign disclosure. So let's say on January 5th, I hit that $500 mark. January 5th, I file my initial campaign disclosure. So the first quarter would be January, February, and March. By April 10th, I'm filing my first quarter report. April, May, and June. By July 10th, I'm filing my second quarter report. July, August, September, 
by October 10th, I'm filing my third quarter report. In October, November, December, by January 10th of the following year, I'm filing my fourth quarter report. And you are going to file that as long as there is a balance in your account. So as long as there's any money in your campaign checking account, you are going to file that. And that is even if you run and lose. You must bring that checking account down to zero and file a final report before your filing requirements are finished with our agency. Let's say you don't raise or spend any money. You will still be, um, you still have to go online through our portal and file a, a pre-election report, which is due 15 to 20 days before the election. And you will just go online and disclose that you did not raise or spend any money. If you are filing quarterly reports, you still have to file that, that pre-election report 15 to 20 days before the election, and it's going to capture everything that's happened since your last quarterly report. It is a, a snapshot for voters as, as they go into the election booth to see um, perhaps who's funding your campaign. Maybe that's of interest to them. So what happens, what, what does enforcement look like? And this is why this, this uh, presentation is called Avoiding the $10,000 Fine. If you do not file one of these reports, your campaign disclosure or your statement of economic interest, you are looking at stiff penalties. And these are penalties that you must pay. They cannot come out of your campaign checking account. Initial would be a $100 penalty. After the certified letter is sent, which we will send that says, hey, you didn't file a statement of economic interest, you will be fined $10 a day for the first 10 days and then $100 a day until you reach the maximum penalty of $5,000. But keep in mind that that is $5,000 per document that you don't file. So if you have to file in a year four campaign disclosures and your statement of economic interest and you don't file any of those, you are looking at maximum penalties of $25,000. And that is $25,000 of your money, not campaign money, not money from your entity. So these fines get really, really steep. Please, please keep track of these things and make sure you file them. Because there are a couple of ways that, that we find out about it. One, we go online, we see, we can see who ran for office, and then we can see, we compare that to whether or not they follow the things they're supposed to file. The other thing is your opponent in the race may call us and say, hey, I filed all of my things, but my opponent didn't. And then we will look into it, um, to it that way as well. The other issue is non-disclosure. Let's say that you file the documents, but you don't disclose everything. At that point, you could get um, $2,000 per item you don't disclose. So let's say on a statement of economic interest, you don't report your child's, um, the, the job that your, your dependent child has, and you fail to, to report three campaign contributions. Those are four things that are missing from a, a host of, of required filings, and you were looking at up, up to $8,000 in penalties for that. This is where we, um, this is an advisory opinion. These are found on our website. This was issued in March of 2019, and it outlines that the commission does not accept campaign, um, campaign money as, as a means of filing um, or, or paying a late filing penalty. All right. I'm going to go back and see if anybody has any questions about campaign disclosures or statement of economic interest or any of, of those required files. Okay. Okay, so the question is, Megan, do you have to report Social Security as a source of income on your SEI? No, sir. Yes, sir. Anything else? Um, Megan, we...
Megan, we have one more question, I think. Yes, sir. Okay, take, take your time. Okay, so, so the question, Megan, is <laughs> how, how do you amend a statement of economic interest that's already been filed? It's after the deadline. Is there a way to amend it without penalty? Yes, you can amend any of these statements at any time. So your campaign disclosures can be amended and your statement of economic interest can be amended. What you do is you, you log into your account. It'll walk you, walk you through which, which item, you're, what you're trying to do. You'll click on the report and you can go in and edit it and then make sure that you file it again and it will show up as an amendment on our website. Both the original and the amendment will both still be visible to the public. You can, if you have any trouble with that, the thing that I want to stress about this the most, y'all, is to please call us. We are here to help you. We are here to assist you. We, though, I see our mission as assisting those who serve the public. So we aren't here to try to play a gotcha. If you say, hey, I just realized after this training that I didn't disclose this thing, I need to go ahead and disclose it. Give us a call. I'll give you our number. I'll give you my cell phone number at, at the end of the presentation. Give us a call. We'll walk you through it because our job is to make your service easier. Well, let's, do, do you mind if we move on and take questions at the end? Do, do you mind whatever, if we, whatever, we're, whatever we're, works for y'all. People want to get the questions out now because they're fresh on their, on their mind. I'm happy with that. You want to wait till the end. I'm flexible. Yeah. So, so Megan, do you do you mind if we just go go ahead with the presentation then, and we'll t we'll t we'll take extra questions at the end? That's fine with me. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll take your. All right, y'all, influencing the outcome of an election. So what we just talked about was the things that get people in trouble most often. We are going to shift gears now and talk about things that get people in the most trouble. These are things that not only um, result in ethics commission issues but bad headlines, and they result in sometimes criminal indictments. So keep this in mind as we're going forward. No person may use government funds, property, or time to influence the outcome of an election. Your public service and your campaign or the campaign of any of your friends should be kept completely separate. Meaning don't go into City Hall and use the printer um, to, to print off campaign materials. Don't use a government-issued uh, email address or laptop or cell phone to advocate for your own campaign or anyone else's. The same goes for ballot measures. If you have some sort of penny referendum coming up and you're, you're going to, to raise sales tax by, taxes by a penny, you can't use government resources to sway that vote. Y'all, this is um, as, as fundamental as uh, a member of a council sending an email to another member of council that says, hey, I think this person, this person should be our next sheriff. Vote for this person. That is a violation of the Ethics Act. Do not in any way conflate the government's resources versus your resources or your campaign resources. These are completely separate things. You also can't, for example, during a city council meeting say, Hey, y'all, I've, I've enjoyed my service on council. I hope you're proud of the things that I've done for you. Remember to vote for me next Tuesday. You can't do that. All of these that we issue about, I encourage anyone in elective office to go online. If you go to ethics.sc.gov, you scroll down and you'll always on the left-hand side see our most recently issued advisory opinion. We also try to send those to the municipal association so they can get the message out as well. But I encourage any elected official to go online and read these so that you're up to date on the do's and don'ts of being an elected official. 
this is this is the other one. But again, both of these are publicly available on our website. If you go to ethics.sc.gov and scroll to the bottom, on the left-hand side, you'll see an area that says recent news. And that'll show our most recent advisory opinions. But if you go just to our website, advisory opinions is a hyperlink on our website, and you can see every advice, every formal advisory opinion the, com the commission has ever issued. All right, y'all. This is the stuff that gets people indicted. Conflicts of interest, using the government's money for your own good or for the good of a business with which you're associated, a family member of yours, or a person with whom you're associated. So what is this? This 813-700 violations is, is what we call them. 700 violations really deals with self-dealing and nepotism. No public official, public member, or public employee may knowingly use his official office, membership, or employment to obtain an economic interest for himself, a family member, an individual with whom he is associated, or a business with which he is associated. And the same is in 700B, except you are influencing that decision-making. So 700A, for example, I let's say I'm on city council, and we are looking to hire a new city administrator, and I vote to hire my sister. That is a 700A violation. Let's say that I have the good sense not to publicly vote, to vote for my sister to get the job, but what I do is before the meeting, I go around to all of the other city council members and I say, hey, y'all remember my sister applied for that job. She'd be great for it. Please, please look out for her. That's a 700B violation. So you can't do through the back door what you can't do through the, through the front door. If at any point in time you're about to take a vote and it seems like it would be a, a windfall for you, a family member, a person with whom you're associated or a business with which you're associated, don't take the vote. You absolutely must recuse yourself. So a family member would be a spouse, parent, brother, sister, child, mother-in-law, father-in-law, son-in-law, brother-in-law, daughter-in-law, sister-in-law, grandparent, or grandchild, okay? An economic interest means that it's one that's distinct from that of the general public. A person with whom you're associated does that not just mean a neighbor or even your best friend that you've had throughout the entirety of your life. It means an individual with whom you have a shared financial interest, a or an immediate member of your family has a shared financial interest, meaning that they are a, a business partner um, or that they are a, a director at an agency that, that you may work for and y'all have that shared financial interest. A business with which you are associated is a business in which you are an immediate family member as a director, officer, owner, employee, or compensated agent. Or if you hold stock in a company, that is worth $100,000 or more, and which constitutes more than 5% of, of the outstanding stock of that company. So if at any point in time, as you're going through your analysis on how to vote, if any of these issues raise red flags, please recuse yourself, okay? Another thing that could come up is vendors. If you have a family member who is a vendor of, of a service that, that your council could possibly use, recuse yourself from the entirety of that process. 740, representing a person before an agency unit or subunit of your board. Um, example of that would be, let's say that you have um, a friend who has a business and they want to build somewhere that is zoned for something else. And then you go before the zoning board that you appoint and speak on your friend's behalf. Those are the types of things that you need to avoid at all costs, okay? These are the things that you can't do under any circumstances. 
You can't receive anything of value with the intent of influencing you in your official capacity. Commonly known as taking a bribe. You cannot take a bribe. Or something community, community members are appreciative. They cannot pay you. You can't use confidential information gained through employment for your personal aid. So let's say through economic development, you understand that there's some new company that's coming to a particular area of town. You can't buy up property around that area in hopes that that property increases in value um, and, and you gain from that. We talked about representing a person before your government, government body. We also talked about accepting honorariums for speaking engagements. Remember, you cannot get paid for speaking in your official capacity. You can only get reimbursed for your actual expenses. So what do you do? You're at city council, you're at the council meeting, you see this issue that's come up, you recognize that you have some sort of um, conflict. At that point in time, you must recuse yourself. Must recuse yourself, meaning that you must do it in writing, okay? You must recuse yourself in writing. If you only do it verbally, it's as though you did not recuse yourself at all. You must do so in writing. You put the issue from which you're recusing, the nature of your and the nature of your conflict. Okay, give it to the um, the chair of the meeting, and then at that point in time, the chair can make that a part of the minutes of the meeting. As you're going down this path, once these ethical issues arise, as a public official, you have the right to request an opinion from us, and it's an opinion at telling us what you think the issue may be and how you should and how you should behave under the Ethics Act. Keep in mind two things about opinions. One, they, may, they must be perspective in nature. Two, they can only be about your own conduct. So they must be perspective in nature and about your own conduct. So I can't, if I'm on council, I can't ask about another council member's conduct and get an opinion on that. And I can't call and say, hey, last night I took this kind of vote. Can you tell me if I was allowed to do that? Can you issue an advisory opinion on that? The way you go about doing this, and if you have a, a pen and something to write on, write this name down. Our general counsel is named Courtney Laster. That is C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y-L-A-S-T-E-R. Her email address is C-L-A-S-T-E-R at ethics, and that's E-T-H-I-C-S dot S-C dot G-O-V. All right, you can email her and ask her any question. Can I vote on this? Can I accept this gift? You can ask her any of these questions and she will give you an informal opinion. Well, she usually takes about maybe at most a week to turn those around, depending upon how many opinions we're working on or whatever, what other work she's working on for the agency. But keep in mind, please don't call her and ask for an opinion on Tuesday at, at 445 for your six o'clock council meeting. Give her enough time to research the issue and prepare a written opinion and get it back to you. Those are informal opinions. Um, a formal opinion can take months to get. Those are like the ones that are available on our website. Those are issued by the commissioners and, and they vote on them and they are binding on the agency and on everyone under the commission's jurisdiction. 
All right, complaint forms. Let's say that, that you're going through this, you're doing your best, and, and either you want to file a complaint because you see something that doesn't quite look right with your entity, or a complaint is filed against you. This is what they're going to look like. They're going to have the complainant, meaning the person who is filing the complaint and their contact information, the respondent, meaning the person against whom the complaint is being filed and their contact information, and the body of that is going to, to list the allegations. It also must be notarized and mailed back to our agency. So the complaint process starts in a number of ways. Commission staff learns of a potential misconduct and initiates a preliminary investigation and decides whether or not to open a complaint or an individual contacts us, wishes to remain anonymous or the individual files a verified complaint. If they wish to remain anonymous, we'll go through that same process of initiating a preliminary investigation and seeing if we can confirm the allegations the anonymous, um, the, the person who, who wishes to remain anonymous made. Then at that point, once the complaint, once there's a written complaint, I look at it and I say, look, if this is true, did a violation of the Ethics Act occur? If the answer is yes, then we open the investigation. Because there are certain times where we get um, complaints that may be um, discussing quite horrendous behavior, but it's not an, a violation of the Ethics Act. And we only deal with violations of the Ethics Act. For example, let's say someone was talking about sexual harassment at a governmental entity. As awful as that is, we only deal with violations of the Ethics Act and sexual harassment is not in that. Once we get a complaint, we will notify the respondent of the complaint and our decision as to whether or not to open it. So there will never be an investigation into you that you do not know about. Um, the good thing is that even after we notify both the complainant and the respondent of our decision as to whether or not to open the investigation, the investigation when probable cause is found. For probable cause to be found, we would have to have a full commission hearing. Six of the eight commissioners would have to agree, and it is more likely than not, that this individual was accused of the, the conduct that is described, and that, that conduct is a violation of the Ethics Act. Once probable cause is found, then notice of hearing is set. Uh, notice of hearing is set and set, okay? So, once we get out and we say probable cause, we will then send you the formal charging documents or the that outline the allegations that have been made against you that probable cause was found on. At that point in time, issues uh, complaints can be solved in one of two ways. One, you can enter into a consent agreement, which is when the accused and our general counsel talk to one another, they agree on the conduct that was violative of the of the act, and they agree on the fine amount. The other is through a hearing process. Of our eight commissioners, three are chosen at random. They sit on the hearing panel. They sit as the judge uh, and jury of both the facts involved the case, and they issue a formal order. And those can be appealed to the full commission, um, and then from there they go to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court. Those, um, those formal hearings include presentation of evidence, um, calling witnesses to the stands, things of that nature. It's basically a mini trial. Y'all, this is our contact information. Again, my name is Megan Walker, M-E-G-H-A-N-W-A-L-K-E-R. This is my cell phone. 
give me a call on it if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, because I know how stressful this stuff can be. My cell phone number is 803-603-8108. Please use it. Please allow, um, allow me and my staff to be of service to you as y'all navigate ethics issues. As y'all as y'all navigate these ethics issues, that is the uh, the conclusion of the presentation. So please please answer or ask any questions that that you may have, and I'll be happy to answer them. Repeat your contact information one more time. Okay. Again, my name is Megan Walker. My cell phone number is eight zero three, six zero three, eight one zero eight. All right, y'all. Let's give Megan a great round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. I'm sorry I couldn't be there in person. I look forward to joining you um, again in the future. If you have any questions, just give me a call, all right? Take care, and thank you for everything you do for the people of South Carolina. I appreciate it. Thank you, Megan. Thank you.